I'm Richard. And I'm Gary, and these are our incredible stories. Hello to all of you out there listening today. Uh, to all of our friends here and across the seas, we appreciate you joining us again for another incredible story. And today is definitely, I think, one of the most incredible stories that we will be telling. It is about a man who was part of a mission that would forever change the world as we know it. And that man's name was Bob Carone. Now, Dad, can you tell us why Bob Carone was part of something that was so monumental that it would change the, um, what we consider modern-day warfare forever? Yes, uh, his uh, actual name was George Carone. He liked to be called Bob, Gary. And um, I can't remember how I first came across him, but it had to be when you were really small uh, back in the uh, either late 80s or, or early 90s. Well, it would have been the 90s, because I, I remember specifically when you contacted him, we were living in uh, Almogordo, and I was in the third grade. Yeah, and one of the reasons that I uh, contacted Bob in the first place was I enjoyed collecting autographs, and I thought, well, this might be a hobby that I could pass on to my son, you. And so um, I contacted Bob and uh, asked for an autograph, and out of that uh, request, uh, a friendship grew and developed, and we uh, were in close contact for a number of years until uh, he uh, eventually uh, passed away. Uh, he was living with his family in Denver at the time, and, and we were not that far away. We were living in uh, Alamogordo, New Mexico. But for our listeners, uh, what, what does this have to do with history? Well, Bob was the tail gunner on the Enola Gay for the atomic mission over Hiroshima. Mm -hmm. So that is extremely important, extremely historical. Uh, he was one of the most widely, his was one of the most widely publicized photos of the crew. Um, if you've seen a photo of them kneeling in front of the aircraft, Bob's the one in front who wears the uh, Brooklyn Dodgers baseball cap, so you can't miss him. Mm -hmm. So he was, the, he was the tail gunner on the Enola Gay, and he told me he hoped that no one in the future would ever witness what he had seen from the tale of the Enola Gay. I can only imagine what that must have looked like to him. I've seen uh, footage of uh, the atomic bomb being tested. I have seen black and white uh, news footage from when the two bombs were dropped. And I can, I, I honestly could never imagine how emotional that would be or what kind of a sight that would be to be sitting in the little spot at the back of an airplane where you would fire the machine gun and watch that go off and realize what has just happened to thousands, hundreds of thousands of people on the ground. Yeah, and we've got uh, footage, combat footage, that uh, from the uh, camera that was mounted in the uh, rear of the plane, but that only gives us uh, a slight sense of what he must have actually witnessed in person. And then about the time he was witnessing it, a shockwave came along that just shook the plane no end. And so he was in a very unique seat, a very unique place, 
in uh, American uh, military history. Now, as I said, he hoped that no one in the future would ever witness what he had seen. Um, and uh, it, it kind of goes along with a quotation I'm aware of from a Civil War general named General uh, William Tecumseh Sherman. He said, war is cruelty and you cannot refine it. And so there's no doubt that uh, what was done had to be done uh, to save American lives, to bring a war to an end, but innocent lives uh, were sacrificed uh, in the process, of course. Well, and let's be honest, uh, nobody really understood how great uh, of an impact this would have on the world as far as what this bomb could do. And it really put a lot of fear into people that uh, there was a new age coming and the, the products of, of war were changing and could be far more devastating than any bullet. Right. And this was only four years after the Japanese had uh, initiated their surprise attack on Pearl Harbor, killing thousands of our uh, servicemen there in Pearl Harbor, Hawaii in 1941. And the Japanese uh, at that time were very fanatical. They would uh, fight to the last man. They wouldn't surrender uh, for the emperor. And so uh, consequently, we knew that if we didn't have some kind of weapon employed, such as the atomic bomb, which we developed, uh, that thousands and thousands more American lives would be lost before the war would finally be brought to an end. So that's, uh, that's uh, Bob's place in history. And uh, we were living at the time in a place that he was very familiar with also, Roswell, New Mexico. That's right, and we'll actually have another story down the road about Roswell, which I'm sure many people who are listening are more than aware of. Yeah, that's the uh, UFO crash at Roswell. Uh, yeah, back in 1947. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, in fact, um, the Army Air Force Base where uh, Bob worked uh, became uh, the uh, center of uh, activity for the uh, UFO uh, crash. They brought the bodies of the aliens supposedly over to that army base. But that's a story for another time. Uh, let's uh, suffice it to say we're familiar with the place. Uh, at the time we were there, it was no longer an Army Air Force base. It was the campus of the uh, Eastern New Mexico University Roswell. Right. But it was also a private municipal airport. So anybody who wanted to fly in and out could fly in with their planes. And I think right. they had like a, a few uh, commuter flights that would yeah. go out of there. Yeah. Well, it was in Roswell, Gary, that uh, on November 20th, 1945, that's where Bob received his discharge from the military. Oh, really? Yeah. His wife, Kay, had driven to Roswell from Dodge City, Kansas to pick him up. And uh, when she saw how skinny he was, you know, he was only 115 pounds at the time. Holy cow. He <laughs> yeah. must have been a toothpick. Ooh. Uh, she told him not to worry because her mother's home cooking, especially the fried chicken, would fatten him back up. Now, I, I can understand why you have to be skinny to ride in one of those airplanes. Do you recall uh, an incident in which I that came to mind? Oh, I do, I do, I do. And that was in Roswell as, uh, as well. I remember they had brought in a bomber. Uh, it yeah, was one definitely... Of the, uh, one of the old World War II bombers. One of the old World War II bombers. It was not one of the larger ones, not the kind that would have held the atomic bomb. Uh, it was a smaller bomber, and uh, it had all of the uh, the parts to it, though. It had the tail gunner seat. It had the area for the um, the radio, uh, you know, um, whoever, 
whatever the radio guy's called. Uh, and then the uh, seats for the pilot and the, the uh, guns on the side. And then, of course, the uh, bomb bay where they would drop the, uh, the smaller bombs when they were targeting specific areas. And I'll never forget that trip because of what happened when we got to the plane. You yeah. Could, yep, you could pay, I think it was $5 a person. And go on the plane. Go on the plane, and you had to go in through the bottom of the airplane, had to climb up a ladder, and then there was a small little crawl space that you would then go up through to get to the cockpit and where all of the other stuff was, the radio operator. And I got through with no problem. Of course, I was in the fifth grade, so I was small, and so it was no different than going on playground equipment. But I remember at that time, uh, you were a little bit heavier than you are now and uh, not as physically fit as you are now. And I remembered that you had gotten wedged in the first opening <laughs> of the plane. And it had created a bit of a situation that took the better part of, oh, I don't want to say it was 15 minutes, but maybe at least seven or eight minutes of uh, struggling to get through that little port. But once you got through, you were in the plane and you were able to go through it with uh, eh, relatively no problem until we got to the Bombay, where they have this little narrow catwalk it has ropes on either side to keep your balance. And then there is a V-shaped piece of metal on both sides that also acts as a brace. And so you have to really kind of, uh, you know, squeeze through there. And I do remember at one point you got a little stuck in that area. Coming out of the plane was no problem, though. So uh, that being said, it was definitely an interesting trip um, and definitely uh, a learning experience about how it would be if you were to be on one of these planes and having to do a job. Yeah, now, you know, uh, my love of history, uh, there's nothing that would have prevented me from getting on that World War II aircraft, but... Not uh, even the small opening. No, but I... think I, they used about two quarts of oil to uh, get you through <laughs> there. I don't know what it was, but uh, in any event, I, I have to tell you, uh, when I came out, I was uh, I had a new understanding and appreciation for the guys who were crammed in there for hours at a time on a bombing mission. It was just, I, I cannot e explain, you know, uh, accurately just how small that whole area was for all of these adult servicemen to cram oh, into sure. for hour after hour on a bombing mission. Mm -hmm. the, the the movies, when you watch them, they make oh, it look like look it's a very comfortable roomy. RV. It is not. No, no, it is not. Well, let's go back to uh, Bob's history. Uh, before he uh, boarded the Enola Gay and flew off into the history books, uh, Bob was just an ordinary GI, Gary. I, I particularly like the story he told me about the time he spent here in Florida. Uh, he was part of the B-29 Accelerated Service Testing Group, but he, he didn't recall if the outfit ever had a number. It, it was definitely a very special outfit. And apparently... The unit was designed to attract very little attention. Of course, this was a top-secret thing he was involved with, the atomic mission. And so his unit had become almost invisible to, even to the military bureaucracy. And Bob remembers that they were always about three months behind in getting their pay. That was one of the problems connected with being, uh, with being connected with a super-secret outfit. They didn't get their pay on time. Mm -hmm. Like I say, they were invisible to the bureaucracy. Uh, but one thing they did get, they got plenty of flight time. They were flying seven days a week all day long, Gary. Oh, wow. Yeah. So the pilot, he's known to history, Colonel Paul Tibbetts. He took uh, special care of his men. He, he knew they would be asked to do what no one throughout all time had ever been asked to do. So 
He grew a bit concerned one day when General Wolfe, who was the head of the 58th Wing, canceled a Christmas leave that he had previously promised to the men. So instead of flying to Atlanta to celebrate the holiday, the crew would again be up in the skies over Florida doing what they did all day, day in and day out, and Christmas leave in Georgia was canceled. Mm. Now, that would be a a morale breaker uh, to, to anyone. So Christmas Eve 1944 arrived, and Bob recalls that he was in the mess hall after a busy day working on the plane, and the crew chief came running in, and he shouted to the guys, Get your shaving kits and Class A uniforms. They were going to Atlanta after all. How did this happen, Bob tells me. Well, he was the first one to arrive at the plane, and Tibbetts was standing there. What's up, Colonel, he said. How come we're going to Atlanta? And with a grin on his face, Tibbetts replied, We have to go in for repairs. Bob looked at the plane, and he, he could detect nothing in this. It looked fine to him. And Tibbetts said, well, look up there, Bob. We have a tear in the rudder. Bob squinted and looked hard and looked hard, and then he spotted the tiniest tear that could have easily been fixed in minutes right there on that airfield in Florida. And Tibbetts said to him, you're not afraid to fly to Atlanta with that tear, are you? And Tibbet said this with a gleam in his eye, according to Bob, and he seemed barely able to stifle a laugh. <laughs> so guess what? Colonel, said Bob, if it means getting to Atlanta for Christmas, I'd fly on a magic carpet. So Tibbetts looked out for his men, and he engineered something that would get them their Christmas leave. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, fooled the bureaucracy. And Bob never forgot the lengths that Tibbetts would go to for his men. And uh, he often wondered how he convinced uh, General Wolfe that the repair had to be done in Atlanta. There must have been a a wink and a nod on the general's part as well, don't you think, Gary? Uh, One would imagine. Well, throughout his life, Bob felt that the atomic mission, officially designated Special Bombing Mission Number 13, was justified. For a while afterwards, he received a lot of appreciation letters, especially thankful were veterans who served on Okinawa preparing for a land invasion of Japan. Now, you have a little more about the atomic bomb that ended, pretty much ended the war so that a a land invasion was not required. Well, sure. I mean, and there's a lot of stories that uh, are connected with the atomic bomb. One of them, I think, is probably a story we should cover in the future about the, uh, the Indianapolis, the sinking of the Indianapolis after it had delivered the uh, the two bombs to um, the Pacific. Um, and then, talked with one of the survivors. I don't remember that. Yeah, I've got his book autographed to us. Oh, well, then we need to do that uh, because mm-hmm. the story, uh, and it's one of my favorite scenes in Jaws when Quint's uh, telling about the story of being in the water, surrounded by the sharks and how many men went in and how many men came out. I think it's fascinating. So there's a lot of stories connected with the atomic bomb, but I think one of the things that we have to focus on too is... The creation of the atomic bomb because like i said at the beginning of this episode this was something that forever changed the world it's what threw us into the cold war because after we developed the technology to create these bombs well then everybody decided that they were going to do it too especially russia and 
the technology behind it and the danger behind it was something that nobody expected. You have to realize when they started putting together the bomb and testing it out, they were exposing scientists and people uh, who were working in the factories to enormous amounts of radiation that was just devastatingly dangerous. And they didn't totally understand the long-term effects of this. I've watched several documentaries on the testings of the atomic bomb and, and what they did after that when they started working on the hydrogen bomb. And I can tell you this, when they first started testing it, this is something that connects uh, me to the whole story, they tested in Alamogordo, New Mexico. And the first test that they did was not with the atomic bomb, but they wanted to create something that would be the equivalent of what they were expecting from the atomic bomb. So they actually put together how many uh, tons of TNT it would take to equivalate this explosion. So they did that first, and it was a massive amount of, of dynamite that created this large mushroom cloud and sound wave that just reverberated for miles. And it wasn't until long after that that they started actually testing the bomb itself. And what they wanted to do is they wanted to kind of uh, put an ease to people as far as, you know, would I be okay if, if something like this happened in my town? You know, how far away could I be and still be safe? So they allowed people to go out to the testing sites. They had one in Nevada. They had one in New Mexico. And they allowed uh, soldiers to be in the trenches. They allowed people to be in bunkers. And they gave them goggles because the flash from this bomb was so intense. It was brighter than the sun. It was so bright it would cause instant blindness. But they allowed people to be there to witness it. Now, the long-term effects, and of course, when it went off, you know, and people were a distance away to not be, you know, incinerated, years later, people developed cancer from it. People who worked in the factories developed cancer from being around it. So it was a very big deal. But the test didn't just stop in Nevada and in New Mexico. They actually did tests uh, in a place called Bikini Island, where they started testing the bomb, uh, different types of bombs, and bomb was so powerful. Do you know what happened to the island when they tested on it? No. The power from the bomb was so intense, it actually sunk the island below the water. Huh. It threw chunks of the island miles and miles away to where some of the ships were parked, where soldiers were watching. Some of them actually picked up pieces of the rock and put it in their pocket. And what do you think happened later on down the road? See, this was something that nobody had anticipated, how powerful it would be. In fact, I know you worked out there at White Sands at the uh, Trinity, near the Trinity test site area. And that area is still radioactive to this day. They have green glass where the bomb had melted the sand into glass. And that area is still radioactive. There are certain times of the year, I believe they do tours out there, right? Yeah, they only allow the, this is the park service that administers the place, the National Park Service, and they only allow tours once or twice a year. I, I'm not sure whether it's uh, twice a year or just once a year, but before they open it up, too, they have uh, Geiger counters to test the radiation level. And there is still some residual radiation there. Exactly. You're right. You've never seen anything like it, this uh, whole ground turned to, to, to green glass. Exactly. And I might add that not far from there, uh, a lot of the... Uh, the atomic scientists were working in uh, Los Alamos. Los Alamos, yes. And Los Alamos for a while had the highest incidence of brain cancer 
yes. anywhere in the United States. Because they didn't understand. I mean, we were really in the early days of experimentation. And one of the things I found was absolutely shocking. They didn't just do tests in the sea and on land. They actually did atmospheric tests. There were a few occasions where they actually took bombs and they strapped them to weather balloons and brought them up in the atmosphere and detonated them. And it caused a lot of problems. One of the major things that came out of it was EMF, uh, electromagnetic fields, which actually knocked out a lot of electronics, uh, radios, um, all sorts of uh, TV signals. I mean, like all sorts of different stuff. Some of this was done late 40s, early 50s when we started getting into having televisions. But there were certain areas where, I mean, like power was knocked out. It was intense. They started learning the capabilities of, of what this, you know, was possible with this. So, and then that kind of brought us into to later years. And I'm sure you remember growing up in the 50s and 60s, uh, the little turtle telling you to duck and cover. Oh, the yeah. little little uh, turtle that uh, was in all of those little 16 millimeter films that they showed at school. But I mean, think about it. With this kind of power, this level of destruction, you couldn't give people the honest truth of what would actually happen. The only people who really knew what this bomb was capable of were the people making it and the people who experienced it. And I know there are places in uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki where they still have the shadows of the people who were standing on the sidewalk burned into the buildings permanently. It's just, you can see their silhouettes, a, uh, like a photograph, uh, a frozen moment in time. So, I mean, even Robert Oppenheimer, the man who was one of the key architects of creating the bomb, was quoted as saying, now I am become death the destroyer of worlds. And I think what he meant by saying this, he realized what he had done, what this weapon when, weapon was capable of doing. And I don't believe it was a sense of pride when he made that quote. It was a sense of realization of what had been created and what it was capable of. I, I will say this, that... Um after Vietnam, a lot of folks in this country were beginning to question everything, everything connected with the country's military history. Mm. Nothing was sacred. And, and Bob didn't feel comfortable about speaking in public about the atomic mission when I knew him. And, and that's kind of a shame because he, he was an actor, a major actor in, the, uh, in history. And because of that, and I, I feel an entire generation of students was really deprived of an eyewitness account of a very important event. However, I will say this. Shortly before Bob died, he did co-author a book, and I'm going to give everyone the title in case uh, uh, some of our listeners would like to follow up on more details of what we're talking about this evening. Bob's book, Bob Carone's book, is Fire of a Thousand Suns, Fire of of a thousand sons. Now, instead of getting the Medal of Honor, um, Bob and, and a, a number of the other crew members, they were really feeling very disappointed by some of the decisions that were being made at this time by the National Air and Space Museum in Washington and how the Enola Gay would be displayed and how the mission would be interpreted to the public. It was a time when uh, things had completely changed in the world. The bad guys were now on our side, also wearing the white hats. Uh, the former Axis nations had become America's closest friends. 
So the, the crew of the atomic mission had apparently become an official embarrassment to the government at that particular time. And I, I feel that sad because they had so faithfully served in a time of war. And I, I think, uh, although he never said in exact words to me, I, I really got the impression from talking with Bob that uh, he felt like uh, he and the other crew members had been uh, cast aside by the bureaucrats at the time. Things have been straightened out since then, by the way. And so, um, but at that time, uh, that's the way it was. Now, I don't believe he ever got over his disappointment, um, but uh, again, like I say, as history moves on, then things change, and I think the Enola Gay um, has a more accurate um, uh, place in our museum, uh, our National Museum today. Now, to wrap up our discussion uh, today, uh, tonight, uh, Gary, I'm going to tell you that I really appreciated all that Bob did for you. Uh, if you recall correctly... He sent you the home addresses of all of the other living crew members of the atomic mission. You remember? You wrote to all of them? Yeah, yeah. I, with assistance. You know, in, in the third mm -hmm. grade, there's not a whole lot of writing going on there. But I do remember that uh, we did contact them, and we were pretty successful in getting the majority of the, uh, the fellows that were still alive being able to get their autographs yeah. to uh, put in the collection. Every single one of them, I remember, every single one of them, promptly wrote back to you with their autographs for your collection. You were getting mail addressed to Gary from every single one of these folks. They were a great group of guys. I only knew and was friends with one of them, but they all seemed like a great group of guys. Oh, sure. So I have happy uh, thoughts and happy memories of my uh, friendship with Bob Carone, mm -hmm. and I'm so happy that we could share tonight the story of how he made history. Absolutely. And uh, as far as my closing statements, I don't think Bob was ever disappointed about what he had to do. I think in the long run, anybody who serves in the military, they, they have committed themselves to doing something honorable for their country. They, they're doing something not just for their country, but for the people that live in their country. And so I, I don't think he was ever embarrassed about what he had to do to serve his country. But I do think that a lot of people have to live with the, the fact that, you know, they, they're putting their lives at risk on a daily basis, and there are choices that have to be made during times of war that, in much the same way that we talked to Grandpa about his war experiences, he often didn't really want to speak too much about it because it brought back a lot of memories that uh, were associated with the time in his life where it was, it was tough, you know? But uh, I do remember the amount of pride that he had in the service that he provided for his country. And I know he would never take that back and he would never be embarrassed uh, to admit that he was a proud soldier during the war and that he did his part uh, as a true patriot. And I do believe that uh, Bob was a true patriot. And I do believe that Bob uh, knew that uh, what he had to do uh, was a necessity for the safety of our country. And uh, we'll uh, end uh, the way we began with uh, General Sherman's comment, war is cruelty, and you cannot refine it. Absolutely. Once again, I'm Richard. And I'm Gary. And that truly was an incredible story. <laughs>